You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Delia Kropp. Delia is an actress based in Chicago. She and I have met several times through Dr. Lisa Hodge Kander, who was my guest on episode 72, and Beth Kander, who was on episode 38. Delia and Lisa have known each other a very long time, and Lisa was thoughtful enough to suggest that I have Delia on the podcast. And I'm so glad we got a chance to talk over Skype about her artistic journey throughout her life and her experiences as a transgender actress and advocate. Towards the end of the episode, she recommends some Feldenkrais audio lessons, which are available for free online. Uh, But she couldn't think of the instructor's name in the moment, so I just wanted to give you that information here. I'll also put the link in the show notes. The webpage or company is called Kinesophics, and the recordings are Feldenkrais Awareness Through Movement Lessons by instructor Lynette Reed. I hope you enjoy the 83rd episode of The Compass. Okay, great. Well, the question I always start with is what do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Well, first off, that assumes that I do. <laughs> well, that's keep true. Going to the dark side. And well, the dark side is different for everyone, so also, what is that? It's a challenge for me, mean? it really is. I, I think I've always been de- prone to depression a lot in my life. And uh, although I'm much, much happier as a person with myself since I've uh, gender transitioned, um, the... Uh, the, the hormones can kind of play into that depression, especially on a seasonal basis. Yeah. Uh, taking Wellbutrin for that. So Wellbutrin is one thing. I keep going to the dark side. <laughs> As an artist specifically, um, well, um, I, I guess from since I transitioned especially, what I try to do is I try to have more of a life outside of the theater or... <sighs> More, more that's, that's not true. More of a life outside of my own career, yeah. uh, and that's where my the uh, advocacy that I'm doing, which uh, I'll talk more about later, uh, that involves just getting the theaters in the Chicago area to uh, look at trans talent a little differently. All trans talent, not just me, <laughs> and the kinds of shows that are being uh, told about uh, about us as trans people. Um, is it's really helps a great deal. It gives me a broader perspective, so it's not just about me. And I, in my particular case, I do happen to be a member of a marginalized community that also, they, that the theater community doesn't have a ways to go yet. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of understanding us and understanding how best to use us and so on and so forth. So um, it's actually making, hope over time, I think, it will make my career a lot smoother i think um other things uh yeah other things the more i can get outside of theater the better it is for me i'm not working out much as i should (laughs) or used to she said pulling in her tummy uh uh, but that that does help uh historically that's that's a good way to do it yeah the seasonal the seasonal stuff must be terrible in chicago yeah (laughs) <laughs> the, the wind. I mean, I have a hard time with it here in New York, and in Chicago, yeah. it's even worse. It's about the same, probably. You, act, yeah. you guys actually get a lot more snow than we do. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we just—I don't know. There's just a myth that Chicago has got these terrible winters, but um, I'm from Michigan as well, and yeah. to me, it's no worse than what we had in Southern Michigan. So, um, no. Dark side artistically, it really is inextricable from just what I keep from going to the dark side as a person. You know, and that's to remain as balanced physically as I possibly can. Um, try to diversify my life, and uh, I, I can speak, I guess, more about that to over just as we talk here. Yeah, we'll it's hard for me. I don't actually keep a laundry list of things I do to keep from going to the dark side. I suppose I should. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm sure different things will come up as we, as we chat. I was, you had sent me your website, which is fantastic. And you had also mentioned that you do some IT work as your, as your day job as well. Is that why your website is so amazing? 
Oh, I, I've been working with computers since uh, the mid-80s, since it was nothing yeah. but a little blinking DOS prompt. Um, what I do for my day job now is no more technically advanced than probably when I was working in offices back in the, oh God, 15 years ago. But it allows me to be my own boss. Yeah. And that's, I guess, one thing I do to maintain a little bit of balance is I, I don't work well in service capacities, which is what majority of what actors do, right? We do temp uh -huh. work, we do waiting tables, we do, you know, jobs where you're constantly dealing with the difficult and demanding public. And uh, I'm doing basically for myself just what I did when I was in an office, which is teaching men that feel they have, that, that, that it's not important for them how to use the computer, how to use the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that must be wonderful if you can like set your own schedule and kind of uh, give yourself that flexibility that so many day jobs don't allow. Yeah, it does. I, I don't make very much money at it, but uh -huh. I do have some flexibility. Yeah, and I like my boss. <laughs> have you found that that part of your career has changed much since you transitioned, the day job part? No. No. I'd say the same. Oh, since I transitioned? Well, they, yeah. they came at the same time. Yeah, I started that back in uh, 2005, which was not long after I first started uh, my gender journey, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about 2007 and in slash 2008 when I started to actually take hormones and commit to this completely. Mm -hmm. And it was about at that same time that I stopped all my other day jobs working for other people and just working for myself. So that's one reason that I'm doing this. Transgender people are not that welcome in the general workforce. Yeah. The same, well, not exactly the same, but the same general resistance I'm meeting in the theater happens out there. Um, and especially if it's anything that involves meeting the general public or talking with important clients. I mean, if it was a job that would just involve going back into a dark room and working by yourself eight hours a day, who the hell would want that? But if it was, then, then it would just be a matter of what I produce and what my knowledge and skill set is. Right. And it might be a better chance, you know, of landing a job like that. But it's also a matter of my age. I, by the time I started transitioning, I was in my late 40s, and I'm just tired of putting up with other people's shit. And they're, they're <laughs> out there, you know, all of their egos and having yeah. a manager that's 20 years younger than you that you're working under and all that kind of stuff. So, no, I can't do that. Yeah. And I just, there's a lot of things about myself I've just come to accept during transition. And... They're not all necessarily noble things. I just really don't like working for other people in certain types of capacities. Working within a theatrical or artistic community, that's different, <laughs> entirely different. But yeah, there's a lot of times when I just as soon tell people to go and shove it. So when I'm the boss, I can go and tell myself to shove it. <laughs> So on your website, you were saying that you, you had taken a break from theater for a while, uh -huh. and then you had decided to come back in the last couple of years, right, to kind of start pursuing it actively again? Yeah. Um, my transition, as it were, was, I hate to use the word complete, because this is going to be a lifelong thing, I'm pretty sure, but right. in terms of my physical transition and in terms of having my name legally changed and my gender marker and my license and I'll realize that happened in June 21st 2011 mm -hmm. uh, it took about another three and a half years am I doing my math right yeah 2015 three and a half years uh, early 2015 to actually re-enter the profession part of that was simply I didn't see a place for me quite frankly <laughs> Uh, the other part was is that after being outside of the theater, gosh, at that point for about seven years, it was nice not to need it. Yeah. I had tied, I'm sure you've heard other people say this, but you tie a lot of your self-esteem and a lot of your self-worth up with your career. And when it doesn't go well, or when people judge you on that basis, then it can be really, really hard, you know, to keep up your own self-esteem and keep a happy face going every day. So uh, I learned to live without theater for the first time since I was about 18 years old, and it was wonderful. I had to, to make this transition. This, I just knew, knowing me, I could not do the experimentation and the, and the 
leave myself vulnerable enough personally and still operate in the public sphere. I just couldn't do it. Even as a director, anything. Hmm. I'm just theater people talk, theater people judge, the, the public judges and they're looking and blah, blah, blah. My appearance did change even before 2011. And um, definitely the way I felt about myself changed. I remember the last theater jobs that I had. Um, my last acting job was just a put-in on a production that I was an AD on. Uh, it was a uh, All My Sons. And I was playing, you know, the, the Arthur Miller doctor part, the intellectual, you know, shoulder to cry on kind of person. It was perfect yeah. casting. <laughs> and I even wore my grandfather's suit. It was about the only suit I had that was tailored perfectly to me. And everything should have been just right for this. And I got on that stage and I just felt like I was in drag. Hmm. Honest to God, I felt naked, I felt weird, I felt that there was a totally different person swimming around inside the tailored suit than what people were seeing out there. And that was pretty much when I decided that I wasn't going to probably be able to keep up with theater. However, <laughs> just a few weeks after that, I was offered a directing gig uh, also at the same theater. Um, and it's a, it was a show that meant a great deal to me. So that production went up in early 2006 and closed in February. And uh, directing that while I was in the midst, very much in the midst of uh, my tra early transition work was challenging too. So, um, so after that, all I did was maybe help a few people behind the scenes. I would go to a few cast parties <laughs> uh, my former my former partner um, Penny, she uh, her career just just about the time I dropped out of theater, her career was exploding. She went equity. She was getting leads. Within a couple of years, she had won a Jeff Award here, our local Tony, mm -hmm. and has uh, uh, been doing extremely well. And and all to her credit, she kept me a part of things. She brought me to cast parties and the openings, things of that nature, so that. I continued to move. In fact, actually, I moved in a better sphere, better. I was, <laughs> I was moving more in the equity uh, circles mm -hmm. than I was in little storefront non-equity. And that proved helpful later on when I re-entered the profession. I had a, a little body of people that, that knew me and that could kind of watch my evolving appearance a little bit from afar, but they didn't really ask any questions. When you're not in the profession, people just, they only sort of half look at you, you know. <laughs> you're sort of there, but they don't really care. You're not a threat. You're not a concern. You're mm -hmm. not a potential artistic partner, you know, of any sort. And that was that was about as much exposure as I could take. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was curious about that, of how your community changed um, when you re-entered the profession if you still had a lot of the same, um, you know, if you still felt connected to a lot of the people who knew you uh -huh. when you were acting before, or if you found yourself being drawn to people who were just meeting you for the first time now? That's a little bit of both. Um, my very first uh, work, as it were, was um, with a company I'd never had an association with. It was About Face Theater, one of our two LGBT companies here mm -hmm. but uh, the person who had recommended me for it was Philip Dawkins and I had acted as a sort of an unofficial consultant on the early readings of his uh, play Charm which was his first play that involved a lot of transgender characters and I had made that connection through Northlight Theater which was one of the shows that Penny worked one of the companies Penny had worked for etc etc Mm -hmm. So that's where having a continual, very light background presence had actually led to me finally getting my early opportunities, if only indirectly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, from there on, I just met a bunch of new people I had never met before, people with the Chicago Inclusion Project. Those are a group of actors working to um, get theaters to consider more gender diverse, racially diverse, uh, physical ability uh, diverse casting. And mm -hmm. I worked with them for about six or seven months. My connections there led to my first understudy gig at the Gift Theater, uh -huh. uh, 
oh yeah, the brand new David Ray play. So I'm sitting like right next to my <laughs> high, my college uh, playwright hero. Because oh, all wow. his big plays were in the 70s, right? Back yeah. when uh, I was in theater. And that was quite a thrill. I never got to go on, but I watched a wonderful, beautiful acting ensemble, and I got to stand next to David Ray for a couple of months. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so the the advocacy work that you find yourself involved in now is that um, with a group that you've started, or with have you found a group that's already been established that you've been? Oh no, able that came that with? came spontaneously, and it was. Nothing I had premeditated. Um, the the story behind that is uh, late last summer, about last August, I guess it would be. I noticed that there were some new plays uh, in the new roster that were in the fall uh, were coming up, and uh, I had taken, uh, I had gone and started a Facebook group just for Chicago transgender actors. It was a small group. <laughs> but, you know, we had about 30, 40 of us. Um, and I asked, hey, here's show XYZ. I never even knew that they were doing that, but it says that there's a transgender character. So which of you auditioned for that? Right. Zero. Uh. Uh, in every single case, they had not auditioned, particularly called or specified any transgender talent for this, for those shows, uh, and many, partly because, well, one project started four years ago, and they used a company member who had pretty much been attached to the project from the beginning as it was going through right. early workshops and the writing process, and that person was a very talented actor, but he was not transgender. Uh, the Goodman ended up doing a show, which God knows they actually put onto their roster. I'll talk about that a little bit more, too, called Support Group for Men. And its pivotal catalyst character is a, they would like to define it as a trans character, and it's not. <laughs> and they made all kinds of rookie mistakes in the script about what gender is and isn't, and what some of the terminology is. and. I spoke right up at the talk back for that. Actually, I did for both of these shows. <laughs> hmm. And I said, hey, I'm a trans person, and this is my take on this, and I'm a little offended about X, Y, and Z. And, right. Uh, actually, but so I ended up getting into a, uh, a group of people that are going to continue to work with that script. The Goodman got so much good feedback as part of this small workshop, this new stages program that they have, that uh, the artistic uh, director decided to choose it for the season, much to the chagrin of all the transgender people uh, who had seen it. And uh, I had raised a stink about that again, and uh, they and had a nice conversation with some of the Goodman staff, and they agreed to include me, at least for one meeting, with the uh, director and the playwright, uh, which is coming up here just a couple weeks, and we're going to sit down and earnestly try to address the problematic aspects of that script and what some possible solutions are. Uh, then there were like a couple other shows too last right. fall, and uh, one of the directors uh, of the directors of one of those shows was a member of another advocacy group uh, advocating for uh, Latinx uh, talent in this city. Mm -hmm. She's a wonderful person. Uh, her name is Lisa Portas, and she went to the Goodman for me. This is in and apart from the whole support group for men thing. And they said, hey, and she said, hey, you know, Delia's identified these shows that are coming up, including one of yours, Goodman. and." Uh, wouldn't it be nice that instead of having to go to every single theater individually, that we could maybe have a forum? And would you sponsor that? And so it, within a very short time, the Goodman said yes, and they reached into their giant um, uh, Rolodex of Chicago theaters. <laughs> and on November 29th, right while I was actually playing the lead in um, I Am My Own Wife, uh -huh. uh, we held uh, a large symposium, over a hundred artistic directors, literary managers, dramaturgs, casting directors. All from the Chicago in that, community. In that one room. And just to discuss transgender actors, trans transgender stories. That's so exciting. Yeah, we had a panel, um, and the panel was largely composed of people who had stage shows about transgender persons, or were in the process of about ready to. 
And, uh, and they, I was not the only transgender actor up there. There were about nine of us, I think, um, mm -hmm. mostly young kids, uh, wonderful, uh, as well as a lot of cisgender directors that had done their best with what they could to cast their shows, um, mostly without trans actors. <laughs> but, you know, under what circumstances is it okay Right. You know, um, if you have other do you have other transgender people in the room at least that ones that can make artistic decisions, right. or are they just sort of in the background, or you just talk to them at a coffee shop for ten minutes and say you've done your research? I mean, there's a whole range <laughs> of, of what you can do, you know, to really make your story, your production ring true, and to serve the community well, without it necessarily incurring censorship. You know. I mean, because one of the uh, one of the viewpoints that many people in the trans community are taking is that if you don't have the trans talent to cast the show, you should not even be putting it on. Yeah. And if that had been the case, then Charm, the show I talked about by Philip Dawkins, would never have been produced. I had very challenging um, demographics on some of its characters. Uh, the lead character is in her 60s, African-American and transgender. <laughs> and then many of the younger kids that are her pupils um, are genderqueer or female to male, male to female. I mean, there's a whole different series of things that makes it very challenging sometimes to find actors that can check all those boxes off authentically. But the subject, was trans, um, the, uh, the uh, older uh, African-American uh, woman, and she was with the production all the way through. I was called in as a consultant, and the playwright was just exceptionally devoted to telling this story as accurately as possible and without, without treating us as freaks, without making us part of a sideshow, which is what happens a lot with transgender uh, stories, a lot, <laughs> TVs and on the stage. And uh, I was very happy with the result. And even though a cisgender male actor ended up playing that, that transgender female, he did a lovely job and he won the Jeff Award for Best Actor. Oh my goodness. The play, the play won the Jeff Award for Best New Play. Oh, and fantastic. so that gorgeous story and that wonderful production would never have happened, you know, if someone had laid down the law and said, no, you do not yeah. have authenticity here, forget it. So what I'm trying to do through my advocacy work and working with these various theaters is to come up with a, a selection of options, you know, um, uh, some best practices maybe, but what can you do when you cannot always follow best practices? So that we at least we're trying our hardest to do our best, both artistically for our, um, for our audiences and also, of course, for the trans community. Yeah, so. it's such an important conversation. And I, I know it's happening in many, many different communities that are underrepresented. And it's that, yep. that fine line between wanting authenticity and also allowing, you know, it's acting and there's a certain amount of transformation that happens. but. How do you do it with respect? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I like to point to the fact that it's been a long time since anybody's let a white actor go into blackface. Mm -hmm. So why should they be allowed to impersonate us? Uh, I call that trans face. Hmm. I really do. When somebody just, when a casting director just goes instinctively for a cisgender actor. Right. Without even considering the more authentic options available to them. Um, one of the issues that we have, though, is that unlike African-American actors who have been going to college and have been in the talent pipeline, one would assume at least since like the 1960s and 70s, right? Trans people, they've found no place for them in this profession. Many of them aren't even afraid to come out completely because there's no place for us in the society. So many of us do not have four years of after right. training. We do not have a resume that goes back 10, 15, 20 years, you know, the way that perhaps some competitive cisgender performers would. Mm -hmm. So you've got to both cultivate a transgender theater community as well as being able to turn to it whenever possible with the, you know, with the understanding that 
yeah, on paper, they may not be quite as ready to go, but you know, we deserve a chance, at least. If you're going to tell our stories, you've got to let us get involved yeah. um, as much as possible. So, and again, a lot of give, a lot of take, you know, <laughs> there's going to be compromises, and we understand that. Um, what I did was to kind of just step outside this whole game for a bit. In 2015, after I had uh, done a couple of readings, I did some auditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the auditions were just generals, in which I did cisgender female characters. And some of them were for parts that were, <laughs> this one was for a, a tract of five roles. Two were female and three were male. Mm -hmm. And she wanted me to do them as do the men as men and do the women as, you know, myself as female. And uh, I did real good. I got to the callbacks. It was kind of down between me and one or two other people. And as I heard, I didn't get cast. I was kind of thinking, God, if I can't even get cast for this, <laughs> you know, I know I did well. And I was told that I was convincing in the female roles and not so convincing in the male roles. <laughs> which also made me kind of angry because I wasn't comfortable doing the male roles. But I think I, I delivered. My, my right. voice is not particularly passable. And I, I think I could butch it up sufficiently. But I guess not. So then I, then I started to examine what I was doing with myself. And I, I've decided since that I'm not ever going to audition for any male parts that even though it's so supposedly the actor's job sometimes to play as cast, to do anything and everything, that transgender is different. <laughs> it just is different. And for me to live authentically, going back and forth over that gender line constantly is just not working for me. And apparently it didn't work for the director in that case either. So why torture both of us? <laughs> right, no, that's important that you realize that that isn't something that is is going to make you happy as an artist or be good for you as a out, person. It's, it's my personal choice, Lee, yeah. too. It's yeah. all, some, many transgender people, they'll audition for trans, for female, and for male. Yeah. Indiscriminately. Particularly the uh, the kids now. A lot of the kids now are gender, gender queer, gender mm -hmm. neutral. So they don't identify as male or female. And they their instrument is such that in many cases, they can audition for certain kinds of male parts, certain kinds of female parts, and they're comfortable with that. Yeah. So what I did after that audition in particular and a few others, I just said, hold on, I'm stepping back from this process. I'm 60 years old. I've got a lot of experience, but I'm in a very odd position here. I can beat myself up and bang my head against the wall trying to audition for cisgender female parts or I can try to make my own opportunities. So that's what I did. I, um, this was about the time that I was uh, understudying at the Gift Theater mm -hmm. and I started going through the literature. What are good transgender parts? And the first one that I flocked to was the uh, the uh, central character in I Am My Own Wife, which is, of course, played it, ended up winning the Tony and the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, and a couple I've of never other gotten to see it, but I, I know about and it. It was done originally as a one-person show. Right. So one cisgender male actor played uh, Charlotte von Malsdorf, uh, the central transgender character, and played about 32 other parts, almost all of which were male. Oh my gosh. And of course, I was resolved I wasn't going to play any more men's parts, right? So I said, thought to myself, well, screw it. You know, why couldn't we just break this up into multiple actors? Um, have myself play Charlotta, which who has about 50 to 60% of the lines. So it's a big part. Uh -huh. And another actor playing uh, the playwright. The playwright, of course, writes, writes himself into this action and is pretty much the second biggest part. And then the other 30-some roles you could just have done with an ensemble of whatever size. So um, the artistic director at About Face uh, thought that was an intriguing idea. We staged a reading months later in April of 2016, and it went well using a cast of four. And so he took it to the playwright, and the playwright said yes, and it was the very first show scheduled in 2016 for About Face theater season. 
I got to play Charlotte von Molesdorf. That's fantastic that you took that initiative and proposed something you wanted to do. That's amazing. Yeah, that was my idea. Earlier yeah. in the year, I also played a, a, tra- a good, really nicely written transgender part. I was cast in that by my other, the other LGBT company, Pride Films and Plays. And that, that I was cast in that at the end of 2015. So, but again, I didn't audition for it. The uh, producer said, we've got this play. It's a very demanding transgender female. If we can't find an actress that can do it, we're not going to do the part. We're not, we're not going to do the play. Right. So they read me a couple of times. I guess I guess I auditioned for it in that sense, but it was an opportunity that was brought to me. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. so one of those, and then one where I was pretty much my entire initiative, and uh, and I like that. I like making opportunities for myself. A lot of actors say that, right? <laughs> I know, but if you can find a way to do it, that's the way to go. Screw auditioning. <laughs> but in my case, particularly, a lot of people in an audition setup, they just don't know what to do with me. They mm-hmm. don't know what to make of me. Um, in some cases, I can look sort of passable for some types of parts. For some things, vocally, I'm okay. For others, they realize that the audience is going to have to make a leap of imagination. Right. And uh, is that okay for the style of play they're doing? Is it not okay? Is it a distraction? Or is it even an asset, possibly, you know? have somebody that's kind of straddling two genders in their in the audience's perception at least um that's a lot of stuff to process for a casting director artistic director when they're at generals (laughs) or well that's why i was saying like your website is so great and i'm sure maybe it came out of getting uninformed questions or awkward (laughs) moments in auditions like in your website you're so honest about what your journey's been um, the things that people may not know or the language they may not know to use. And I'm sure if the casting director takes the time to look at that before they have you come into audition. Thank you. Thank can, you, Leah. Well, can, that's why I put it out there. Yeah, it's can, not the actor who says, I will only play characters of a certain gender, and this is why. <laughs> yeah. Or I identify as female, so these are my pronouns. Or... You know, my hair is real, my breasts are real, etc. But, but I think these are helpful to professionals. Um, they're going to be asked, they're going to be wondering them anyway. Yeah, and it's right? very just open and honest, which I love. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to be as transparent about this whole process as I can be. Yeah. Uh, so it's not clouded in mysticism. And basically, if you don't come forward and tell people who you are and what you are, they're going to they're going to fill it in themselves. Yeah, especially our creative types. They're gonna yeah. they're gonna guess and or just label you right off the bat. Yeah, or make so. up some story that has nothing to do with your life. Yeah, I like to beat them to the punch. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk to me a little bit about your directing and what that brings you as an artist? What you enjoy about that? Oh yeah, thank you. Um, since I've transitioned, I've only directed one show, and it was a it was a small reading. Um, but I am looking forward to doing much more of that. I've always been a very visual person. I actually got a, uh, a full ride to college to Michigan State on, a, on an art scholarship, not oh. a theater studies scholarship. And uh, I guess I've always had a sort of, and I'm kind of bossy, let's put it in there. <laughs> I, like, I like to be, I like to have a lot of control in different aspects. You're a leader. So, <laughs> um, well, you know, you know Lisa, of course, and uh-huh. she's spoken here, and she was my first wife. We met in college, and right. we worked together as well. And uh, the very first, my very first directing project ever was uh, directing her in um, The Glass Menagerie. Oh. Again, uh, she played uh, Kate in Taming of the Shrew. And uh, I found that the skill set that I had uh, in terms of, you know, composition, and uh, I, I was a big, big fan of classical music as well, you know, which is all about a lot of aspects of rhythm and pacing and so on that are just, I think, in this, I mean, just really, really useful for a director to know about. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I had a kind of a, a good skill set to bring to that. I have no formal training in directing at all, unlike acting. Uh, and I approach it pretty much as a... I guess people like to say as an actor's director, uh-huh. you know, 
primarily this is to service the actors. I see that as the director's role. What you do for design in all aspects and with the script should further that, but the actors, you take away everything but the actors, you've still got to play. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like a lot of directors that start with this amazing design concept and then kind of squish and shove and snip <laughs> the actors until they squeeze into that directing that design concept I think that's I think that's just way backwards so um, so yeah so it, uh, it's a way of I guess taking a bigger perspective uh, artistically and uh, as a transgender person it may be more of a necessity too I don't know what kind of acting work I'm gonna be getting I well, really don't it might also be a really strong tool for you as a trans artist to be in that position of power and to be making those decisions of how the story is going to be told and it, it being more inclusive to actors and um, yeah, being in that leadership role, it might be, might be influential. Well, certainly if I can find a show that does touch on trans issues or has trans characters that I am not castable for, uh, yeah. yeah, I would like to be able to show them how it's done. <laughs> I and mean, that's oversimplifying it. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you still uh, do visual art? Do you have any other um, artistic outlets, even if it's just a hobby? Are you a writer or any other little things? Um, I do a little bit of writing, but um, not a lot yet. I work with a lot of writers and read a lot of scripts and help them more, I would say. Um, no, I don't worry. I don't do. I don't know why. I just had this. When I turned my back on the visual arts, I turned it pretty completely. Yeah. I, I think partly is because I associate my hours and hours of drawing and painting with being kind of lonely as a child. Um, indeed, when I was a college freshman, there, there were other reasons as well. But the reason I left the art department is I could not see myself spending the next 50 years of my life in a room by myself staring at an easel. Hmm. In theater, you, it is absolutely built into the process. You're going to be working with several people to create something. Yeah. And I liked that. <laughs> I, I much <laughs> preferred that. So, I don't know, there are times that I like to be alone and have my own thing, but now it's Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loves that. <laughs> what did your family make of your decision to be an artist, to pursue that as your career? You mean to be a theater artist or to be an artist artist? Well, I guess, I guess since you hooked on to theater so early and kind of made that your career, I guess that is what I mean. Well, I have continually challenged my family's expectations they're constantly thinking I'm gonna come up with one more weird thing just the <laughs> fact that I was going into visual arts was a challenge for them and you know they saw me drawing around the house for 18 years including apparently when I was in diapers my mom has all sorts of interesting <laughs> scatological stories to oh, tell no. <laughs> but when I got a full scholarship so they didn't have to pay a penny towards my tuition they they caught up maybe there's something to that interesting <laughs> When I, when I jumped ship on that after a year, or I was gradual, I was kind of sneaky about it. I auditioned for shows while I was still technically enrolled in the art. But, but a few years later, you know, Lisa and I auditioned for the Drama Studio London, and we were both accepted. I said, Mom and Dad, this is it. This is for real. I'm going to go to London. I'm going to train as an actor. Oh, boy, that was another big stretch for them. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. And uh, I went over there, then came to Chicago, got cast immediately in a couple of shows at the Goodman, and uh, which even back then was still the big game in town, yeah. the, the big, you know, the big spectacle type of shows that are very impressive to your parents, you know, <laughs> and the Christmas Carol. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, granted, I was playing Don't Blink characters, you know, Don't, don't blink, blink or you know, you'll never but see. Still. <laughs> <laughs> but um and uh, that's been a tough row for them. They're mostly just concerned about me, you know, about my fiscal and my mental health. That's indeed, I think, all parents are. Yeah. Uh, until you get famous, right? Then they're like, oh, yes, I supported them all along. <laughs> <laughs> I always knew. 
And then adding the transgender uh, transition on top of it all, it's been, my mom was gone before that happened, but my stepmom was around. She was extremely supportive of my transition and of my theater work. My dad just doesn't understand it. He's in his 80s now anyway, so I try not to challenge him too much with new things, but... Um, Is he in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he lives with my sister now. He's not really able to live by himself. So he lives with my sister, and those two are what's left of... And my sister's two sons who live uh, alone, who live mm-hmm. away from home. They're, those four people are what's really left of my nuclear family. Yeah. And uh, I, if I do well, they're supportive. My sister, for the first time, oh my God, since, I want to say since the 70s, actually came to Chicago to see me in I Am My Own Wife. Oh, that's wonderful. Partly because my 60th birthday fell during the run of the show. <laughs> and she wanted to be there to help me celebrate. But she made sure to get her sons uh, one of them has a girlfriend in Chicago. She got both sons to come to see the show as well. Oh. Uh, that was definitely the first time they had seen me do anything. And uh, it makes a difference when people can see yeah. it's involved, and especially with a very demanding part like that, then they take you more seriously. Um, again, this is the same, I suppose, with all actors. You know, those persons whose parents will show up in the audience or who can show up in the audience if they're a long ways away, they're going to get a little more support, I think, than those that just will see the downside, the, the periods of unemployment in the career mm-hmm. and uh, how difficult it is to deal with the uh, rejection and the auditions and so on. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I say ambivalent, but they're, they're, they try. They really try to be supportive. <laughs> yeah. So you've been in Chicago for a long time now. Yeah, I came here first in 1979. I did go back to Lansing for a few years. I taught college and sort of tried to figure out what to have to do next. Uh, I've been here continuously since 85. What do you think is the biggest change you've seen in the in the theater community? Well, that's a good question. Well, there are more theaters, mm-hmm. and they are more diverse uh, racially, gender-wise and so on, but they've got a long ways to go, just like all theaters do, especially in terms of participation of women in directing and other, yeah, (laughs) other capacities. Um, But yeah, it's gotten bigger, it's gotten more of a reputation. By the mid-80s, it's already had a great reputation, when I decided to come back and really commit to this. Uh, Steppenwolf, of course, had already taken a couple of shows to Broadway by then, and this whole Chicago style, the (laughs) nitty-gritty... You know, ultra method stuff was pretty much emblazoned in the myth, in theater myth by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not so sure really how real it that ever was. <laughs> but especially now that we're incredibly diverse artistically as well. We do every kind of st- acting style, every kind of play under the sun here. We have, I mean, back when I came here was the year that Chicago Shakespeare started up just little ragtag group of people on the uh, roof of a pub but now they have about a like a 40 million annual budget and they're building this huge facility called the yard which is a flexible shakespeare space in addition to their two other shakespeare i was going to say i haven't been there in about 10 years but i remember the building being beautiful then yeah i mean what, <laughs> what you remember is still pretty much kind of the core of it but there's this whole other brand new edifice that is about to open in a few months here so yeah and again i mean not all startups do that most theaters that start up as you know they're they start out as little storefronts or little pub theaters and then they die yeah it's hard the majority but many do survive many simply stay storefronts or pub theaters a few grow up and become maybe a small equity house yeah but many of them have persevered, and uh, I watched the community grow. More actors, more directors, uh, and we have a, an international reputation here now, and it's very well really deserved. Yeah. Is there a lesson you've learned in the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Oh, it's probably this lesson that all, all y'all other actors knew from the start, and that's 
you've got to build on yourself mm. who you really are uh, to, to create a convincing character. And I had never done that mm. for the first 30 years of my career, really. I was, and I would, I, I'm not just second guessing this looking back. I think even as I was trying to, to make do, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know it was necessarily gender identity. And that's not the whole picture, by the way. I did a lot of other work I'm not really prepared to talk about here, that's but fine. it was profound and it was, it was, it helped me transform and transition in other ways during my transition. And uh, so I was always running from myself. I was acting to get away from who I was. Uh, there's a Bo Kurt Vonnegut story, I believe, about that, isn't there? About these two people that work in community theater and they are constantly taking on these roles to, to escape their humdrum, dull lives. Well, in this case, it was just to escape this person in me that I just didn't understand, I didn't like, and I just thought was false. But after I transitioned, and I think one of the things that really drew me back, Leo, was to see what would it be like to really act as me. Yeah. I mean, to build on that for your character. And it's 100% different. It's so much <laughs> more fun. I am a much better actor. Uh, everybody can pretty much agrees with that. I saw my work before. <laughs> and... Uh, there's just a range of a nuance and power because there's a real human being that I'm building this on yeah. instead of a real human being that I'm trying to flee from. In a sense, I was almost doing like a donut performance before. There was kind of something hollow at the middle. Hmm. Uh, no matter how good you are technically and how much you do your dramaturgy and you know, all these other things to help you kind of work from the outside in, you, it's much much better to have something real in there so and again most of you all you, you know that that's part of your training I mean, right in college right so the, you do it's that it's still a right? huge huge hurdle for everyone i think but that's yeah a, that's that's a wonderful thing um let me see how long i've kept you i want to keep you too long am i a kept woman <laughs> <laughs> You know that Taming of the Shrew was the first Shakespeare play that Lisa directed us in when we were kids. Oh, was it really? Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. I, I didn't know that. I played Tranio when I was nine. Okay. <laughs> so she's always, she's always had that love for that play. Yeah, um, I, guess, I guess we all kind of do that for like the, the first play that you really connected with when you were young. Kind of hold Midsummer it. Midsummer Night's Dream. Or yeah, Romeo okay. and Juliet, or, or yeah. uh, Taming of the Shrew, yeah. yeah. What was nice about Taming of the Shrew is that it, especially <laughs> modern productions, is about gender roles, isn't it? Yeah. What is it to be a man? What is it to be a woman? Yeah. What is the negotiation that one does to have a successful partnership? That's um, true. Or to at least appear to have a successful partnership, mm -hmm. <laughs> in their case, maybe. Uh, so yeah, those are those are really hot and heavy items in most teenagers' minds. <laughs> you know, they did a. It wasn't entirely successful in my mind, but they did a really interesting all-female production of it in Central Park last summer. Oh um, yeah, I think I'd heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed yeah, seeing it. It wasn't completely <laughs> successful, but. Uh, that's yeah, there's been all-male, uh, gay versions of that. I <laughs> believe as well. But yeah, it's really about relationships. Yeah. And, partnering and the relationship of the authentic relationship to the outside world so I don't see why you couldn't do it a lot of different ways yeah okay well let me get to kind of the last few questions and then sure. I'll, let, I'll sure. let you get on with your night if you are in a place where you're feeling really uninspired is are there any physical tangible <coughs> things that you reach for again and again like a certain book or a place you go or music you listen to kind of helps you get out of it ice cream ice cream <laughs> <laughs> it just depends on what mood i'm in really um yeah i've done yoga um i did that more during my transition than i do now but i do some exercises uh during i, I 
My transition involved five years of uh, cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, normal is six months. So I was, it was a desperate case, I guess. But no, I, I, I did have a lot of uh, challenges that I worked through. And one aspect of the, my cognitive behavior therapy was, um, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten the name of it. The eye movements, EMR, I think it's mm -hmm. called. No, rapid eye movement. It's where you move your eyes back and forth, but it can be almost anything. You can be left. It's, it's to basically it's to cross the lateral plane of your brain. Okay. You do something with the left side and the right side, and you do it in a rhythm, a relatively slow rhythm, and it can be very calming, and it can be very focusing. It can be used as a type of meditation. We did that in therapy whenever I was talking about extremely stressful, traumatic things in my past uh -huh. so that I could start to experience what it was like to think about those things and talk about those things without completely shattering, <laughs> falling apart. And I guess when times get really rough, I do utilize that a bit. Um, I think what I just do for this is I just close my eyes and move my eyes very slowly to the left and slowly to the right. Uh, those are also exercises that I do uh, from the Feldenkrais technique. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's two aspects to this. And uh, I use ATM, the awareness through movement, whereby you do things to yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, the other Feldenkrais technique, I forget the name of it, is when somebody does that to you. Yeah, we did Alexander technique, which I think is similar. It's very way, yeah. similar, except that Alexander is more of a static thing. It's to find a perfect positioning mm -hmm. and alignment. Uh, you may move a bit to find that, but uh, ATM is always about the movement. Always about the movement. A very, usually a very slow, very relaxed. The idea is that you can discover new ways. You can program yourself new, in new ways by doing certain very specific movements in a very slow manner if you're making any effort in the slightest you're not doing it right and that also can be used either as a meditation yeah. um, as a way to relieve stress or simply if you find yourself with some sort of alignment or other you know physical tension challenges as a way of working that out and those are out, uh, there's a lot of those available online hmm. and if there are any actors out there that are looking for something different to try Try finding uh, the full classes. There's one if you uh, I'm just like remember her name. If you if you if you Google, oh jeez, can I just give this to you later and maybe yeah. you can include it with the text? But sure. there's one person in particular in Canada who has over a hundred of these classes, about thirty to sixty minutes online. You can download them or listen to them as a podcast. And they're wonderful because you don't really need to see. She describes everything you're supposed to do. You really shouldn't be copying other people. You should find your way to do these movements. So I'd highly recommend those. And, and if I was to really be disciplined again, I would start doing my yoga too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. I'll have to look that up. And then the other question is, have you seen anything recently that you want to recommend? Yeah. Of, of any art form, but... Okay, yeah, uh, two plays at Steppenwolf. Um, I'm not necessarily a huge devotee of Steppenwolf, but they have, in the last three, four weeks, I've seen two life-changing shows there. Uh, one was a discussion about race in the way that theater discusses things, which is to show, not tell, and it's called Passover. Mm-hmm just closed but i can guarantee it's going to be done all over this country it's sort of like um um a black urban version of waiting for godot yeah i a, a friend of brilliant. mine um directed it but i really don't know anything about the script it's brilliant and um when it's performed well it was performed extraordinarily well at steppenwolf in its world I think world premiere i think it was just amazing and the other show uh, the I just saw uh, two nights ago is by Taylor Mack. Uh, I think it was came out in 2015. It's called Here, H-I-R. I didn't get which, to see that in New York. You didn't? I did uh, not. I love Taylor Mack, though. Yeah, uh, this production is amazing, and it's got some of the best uh, 
And this is again, it's Steppenwolf, but it's not the nitty gritty realism. I mean, it's high, it's broad. It's almost in some parts, it's almost closer to Commedia dell'arte. Um, oh, that's taking it a bit far, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Coyote ugly, those kind of things, really mm-hmm. big, um, absurdist, you know, types of styles. But they can do it, and they do it brilliantly. And what it is, it's it's a, it's a very dark and funny meditation on gender roles. Not there is a trans character in it, but it's not about being transgender. It's about how the rigid gender stereotypical roles that we're assigned are often a very bad fit or have some built-in toxicity and bad things to them, whereby men have to be men with a capital M and women with a capital W, and they end up you know, resenting that, uh, those roles and hurting each other. Oftentimes, physically hurting each other because of, you know, the kinds of life that we're supposed to live, and uh, and what happens when a family, when a group of people tries to break out of those, and again, it's very dark, mm. very, very funny, and uh, it's one of those kinds of plays that it's why you do theater. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I wish I could see that one. Oh, it's funny for another month if you can get here. I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> Stay on Dell's couch. <laughs> I know. I have so many friends to visit. I try to get out there as often as I can. Um, Was well, there anything that I did not ask you about that you really wanted to touch on before we wrap it up, or you feel good? I guess I want to talk, just touch on one thing. I don't even sure. know if you want to use this, but and uh, it has to do with what is sometimes called activist theater. Okay. I went through college as a white male, intellectual, who agreed, who believed in art for art's sake, and that art and politics were never a really good companion for one another. Um, but Brecht was okay. <laughs> you know, the typical, the typical Western white male, you know, centrist type of view. I come just about 180 degrees Hmm. on that. I think that theater, because of the kind of art that it is, it's immersed completely in the now and in the, and what the audience brings into that space is at least as important as what you've been rehearsing the last three or four weeks. And if there are big things going on out there, that have to do with race, that have to do with gender identity, that, oh my God, well, since Trump's been elected, what is there not to deal with out there, no matter what side of the line you're on? <laughs> yeah. Um, then, you ha- then the theater must address those. It must give a voice to those. It, in some cases, also, I think you have to let that affect how you do your art. Um, I've mentioned already that I think, you know, that transgender people should be you know, given preference for transgender parts, at least preference, because we bring something important to that. When I was in I Am My Own Wife, Leah, I can't, I can't hardly describe it to you. Actually, probably Beth or Lisa would do a better job. But having a real transgender person on that stage completely embody that part. See, that's the other reason I wanted to do it this way. I didn't have to jump around, do right. a bunch of other parts. I stayed on stage for almost that entire two hours, and I was always Charlotta. Right. It creates a presence. It creates a reality to transgender people, which is almost stronger than when you meet somebody in public. You know what I mean? How somebody becomes more real on mm-hmm. stage, in a sense, because of the way you process that character. And you couldn't do that with a cisgender character, with a cisgender actor. You just couldn't. It would always look like they're pretending. And that's what people accuse us enough of doing is, oh, you're just pretending to be family. You're pretending to be this, pretending to be that. But to see somebody who really was trans, that's remarkable. Um, Just as equivalency, I think, is when you're going to see a play on race, you need to have a black director, a black playwright whenever possible. You need to really get people that know what it's like to be black in in a white world have the big voices in those. Um, I just don't, I can't see other any other way to do it. I mean, I think I'm empathetic, I think I'm sympathetic, but I know that they're going through crap that we can only guess at. So the activist theater 
how you do your art as well as just you know what plays you choose that's something I've come around on and I, hmm. I guess because of my transition right you start to see when you're outside the mainstream that there is a mainstream yeah. <laughs> and that that mainstream has a lot of blind spots a lot of privilege and in many ways needs to get its shit together and theater's really good at that. Theater's good at kicking people's butts. Don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> what was I the Arto agree. quote? It's to make the comfortable uncomfortable uh-huh. and to give the uncomfortable a voice or something like that. Something uh, like that. I, I, I totally angled the <laughs> quote, but yeah, I believe in that. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you talked about that. <laughs> well, Delia, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. I'm so glad we got to talk. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Leah. I appreciate it. listening to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.